it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. And, and I believe that. And I, and I believe that. But I also didn't have any peace. And um, we had a scheduled visit. So grandma and um, the girl's older sister and auntie were at our place. So, but I can see that grandma is really stressed. And so I say, hey, what, what's up? And she tells me mom had a baby today and a baby boy. And they're just distraught. Hey, everybody, my guest on this episode of Unbeatable is Robbie Seal. Robbie is kind of like a super mom. You see, she's had one child of her own and then adopted four children. And you're thinking, no big deal, right? Well, those four children all had some degree of special needs because they all were somewhere along the fetal alcohol spectrum. So can you imagine what this felt like to her when she had been giving years of her life to those adopted children and then they look her in the eyes and say, Mom, I want to meet my biological family. I want to get to know my biological mother. I can't wait for you to hear this moment when Robbie introduces those children to their biological mother on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Robbie, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's great to be with you. Jeff, it's really great to be with you too. I'm coming to you from all the way from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Awesome. Hey, let me just tell you, uh, about the only thing that I know about Canada is I really like ginger ale and you guys make some amazing Canadian dry ginger ale up there. Absolutely. Canada dry ginger ale is one of my favorites. How about our Tim Hortons coffee? You must know about Uh, that. Of course. Everybody knows about Tim Hortons coffee. (laughs) Not just the coffee, but the donuts, right? Donuts and the Timbits, the donut holes we have as well. (laughs) Um, It's the winter time. Winter time in uh, Columbus, Georgia, where I live, means temperatures are a brisk uh, 60 degrees this morning. But what's temperatures like up in Alberta? Well... You know, it's, it's minus 38 degrees Celsius here today, Jeff. So um, I would take a brisk, you know, 60 degrees Celsius. If you and your family (laughs) need to get away from the the Canadian temperatures for a little bit, you're welcome to come down to South Georgia where I'm at. I'm making plans right now. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I've been looking forward to this episode because I kind of did a little bit of research on you. I'm so impressed with the way that you have parented um, in some challenging circumstances. So what I'd like for us to do is speak a few minutes about um, uh, your time um, working with families that were going through foster care and then your personal experiences with adoption. So can you describe, just for the listeners to get to know you a little bit, describe your family for us for a minute. All right. My family is comprised of myself and my husband. Uh, this is my second marriage. In my first marriage, I had a biological daughter when I was 23 years old and then went on to intentionally build my family through foster care and ultimately adoption. And so at this time, I have five children. They age from 30 to 14. Awesome. So if you want to put me on a prayer list, that would be appreciated. Yes. And for anybody who's driving and listening to this right now and you don't get a chance to see it, you would never know by looking at Robbie that she has children aged 30 all the way down to teenagers. Um, You don't look like it. Um, You've been around. Thank you. Yeah. You've been around foster care. It looks like you just had a passion for this growing up. Is that right? 
Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, the passion started, I've always been passionate about families, about people, uh, about kids who are struggling. Um, my, my parents were foster parents for very briefly for about a year and a bit. And so that was probably my first introduction. And yeah, I, when I saw some kids in the, on the streets in my little city of Edmonton is now a million people. So 30 years ago, it was not that big of a city. And I had the occasion to be downtown for an event one evening. And my then boyfriend wanted to show me I thought I knew everything. So he was going to show me something I didn't know. Of, of course, because boyfriends are uh, like What that. I was well, going to say, was, every, everybody thinks they know everything when they're that age. Sure. Oh, I was 19. I knew everything yeah. about everything. Yeah. Me too. Um, <laughs> what I saw shook my life and shook me to the core and changed the trajectory of my life. I'm so thankful I saw it and my heart still breaks. What I saw was in a January in Edmonton, remember it's very cold here, I saw children under the age of 12 walking the alleys. I can only presume oh that goodness. they were prostituting. Yeah, yeah. And my heart broke. And I thought, I grew up in a, in a nice Christian family. I was safe. I was secure. I was protected. I had no idea this kind of stuff happened. No idea. And in that moment, I can still see those faces. And in that moment, it changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I dedicated my life to children in need. I didn't know exactly what that would be yet, but I dedicated my life to children in need. And I changed my courses at at college. I was planning to become a travel agent, which would have been a whole lot more fun. Oh yeah, than what because I'm you doing. could be in sunny Florida right now. <laughs> I could be in sunny Florida right now, um, but I opted to become a child and youth care worker, um, so working with children in desperate need of support. Yeah, 19 years old, and you're exposed for the first time to 12 year old girls walking the streets in the winter time in Canada. Um, you said that it really left an impact on you. Uh, listen, other 19-year-old uh, young women see that for the first time, and they don't notice it. Why did this have such an impact on you um, the first time you saw it? I don't know. It broke my heart, and it was so surprising. And you know what it did is it placed a calling on my life, that God placed a calling on my life, that, Robbie, you've got to do something. And, you know, I thought... It, you know, would it be a social worker? Would it be a child youth care worker? But I didn't know. I knew I wanted to work directly with children. And as you, you know, as you take a step of faith in a certain direction, the Lord opens up a wider path for you as to, or, or perhaps a more narrowed yeah. path, yeah. a more focused path yeah. is really what it is, a more focused path. So I did study child and youth care. I did work with children, uh, pre-adolescent children in group homes, as well as adolescents in a lockup facility. There encountered more of life I didn't know existed. Um, was humbled and and still haunted by some of the things I learned at that time. Uh, but as I grew and I got married, I knew that I wanted to build my family through foster care. You you decided early on in your marriage you wanted to foster children. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Before for, I had my own child. For people that are not familiar with foster care and adoption, what's the difference between the two? Okay. Foster parenting, foster care is when a child is taken into the care of the government because of a lack of safety and security in their biological family. Now, it's a very high standard before a child will be apprehended, but the, the, the causes for apprehension would be severe neglect, abuse, uh, mental health, mental illness on part of the parents that prohibits them from being good, um, providing safe care. And also often addiction is a part of that issue. And it is not uncommon that children in the foster care system are families themselves who have a, a yeah. historical re 
you know, yeah. generations of mm -hmm. child welfare involvement. Now, some of the children, and now also the objective of foster care is not just to take children away. It is really to strengthen the families. Mm -hmm. At least that's the mandate now. And it certainly was 20 years ago when I took in my first foster daughter. The idea behind that was that we're going to reunify this family because we know that children do best in their own biological mm -hmm. families, if at all possible. So can we give these parents support to, to enable them to be able to parent their own children? That's the role of foster care. Sometimes that can't happen. Sometimes children have to remain permanently in the care of the government. In Canada, we call that a PGO order, um, permanent guardianship order. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> permanent guardianship order. And at that point, those children um, are available, legally available for adoption, um, with some exceptions. If children have Indigenous status, uh, they may not be eligible for uh, adoption, but they still may need to remain in long-term foster care. Um, and so we, so that's the difference. And then adoption in that way is, is looking for permanency for that child, because we also know children don't do well languishing in instability and foster care yeah. can be very unstable. Yeah. I've known some families that have adopted. I have the greatest respect for them. That's one of the reasons why I was looking forward to being on this episode with you, Robbie, but the families that foster in uh, that that uh, foster children, they, in my opinion, just blow me away because really what they're saying is I'm going to uh, take a child into my home. I'm going to take them into my heart. I'm going to love them for a little while. And then I know that they're going to leave. And the knowing that they're going to leave, I think, is the reason why lots of families say I just can't do that because of the heartbreak of leaving letting, uh, when that child leaves. Um, and you've been around that sounds like since you were a young woman but that yeah i have been and certainly i've heard that said too like how i could never do it i could never do it well that's for you to decide not for <laughs> yeah, me to decide right but you know um i think you have to have the perspective though of this maybe this mom is really struggling and maybe maybe some not good things have happened maybe some trauma has happened but what if the services around her came and lovingly supported her and taught her and enabled her. And then this family could be brought back together. What a beautiful thing that is. And, and that's the role of foster parents is to be part of that. Yeah. So it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing if it can work. Yeah. I'm not trying to advocate that people listening to go out and sign up for foster care, but what you're describing is foster care may be the, the thing that gives a, a parent the, a break that they need to be able to get something straight in their life so that they can be the parent that that child needs, which man, uh, the, the impact that a foster, that foster parents can have is incredible. So yeah, for all of you out there that are, that have done that or are doing that, I have the greatest respect for you. Um, as I'm, I'm amazed that as a young woman, newly married, you decided I definitely want to grow my family through foster care. And then eventually decided, you know what? Um, I, I, I love these children so much. I want to, uh, adopt them and make them my own. So you have adopted four. Um, can you describe the adoption process for each? Because two of the four are twins, correct? Correct. Yeah, so describe a little bit about each one of the children that you've adopted. Certainly. Well, each journey was very, very different. Absolutely. So as I said, I was married young at 22, had a baby at 23, chose not to have any more children biologically, but intentionally building my family through foster care or adoption. Didn't know what that would be. When my daughter was six years old, we decided to go to, to start the application process to be trained to be foster parents 
or adoptive parents figuring out what that would be because we elected to go through the government system because there's so many kids locally that are like thousands and thousands of children in Alberta that are waiting for foster placements or adoption as there would be in Georgia. So we went through that training process. And as we did, we decided we would take us, there was a special route that was happening at this time and it was called foster to adopt. This is a tricky route and it's very, it's very challenging, but it's that you become a foster parent with the intention of being that foster parent. So you know how fluid mm-hmm. this may or may not be. And also the commitment that you'll adopt this child. So you're walking. Oh, you have roads. to make that commitment up front. Well, that's your intention. Yeah, your right. intention yeah. is that as the foster parent and prospective adoptive parent, you will you will hold space for all of that um inconsistency, all of that um unknown Mm -hmm. so that the child can have permanence. So the child isn't going foster care, foster care, adoption or whatever. So the child has one solid placement to reduce the trauma and the impact on the child. Well, that fit with my, my mind and my heart right away. Yes. If I can hold that space, if I can be the stable adult, let me do that. It's also, it's not just all foster children would go that route. These are children that when they are taken into care based on the case, based on the family history, it's highly highly likely that they will be adopted because of all of the previous Mm -hmm. uh, social services interventions that have not profited. So this is what we did. And so this child, we went through that program and then we did our home study. So, you you know, I don't know how many weeks, of course it was 40 hours of training. Then we did a home study. That is an arduous process. You open up your life. You know, we all live as these independent, self-sufficient households. Nobody knows, you know, all the ins and outs. Well, now a complete stranger has to know all the ins and outs, you know, finances, how you settle arguments, what's your sex life, everything. They want to know everything. Wow. So that was really hard. Yeah, yeah. I was 29 years old. That's really hard to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, that ended up in a foster to adopt placement of a three-year-old, which was my ideal. I didn't really want to take a baby. I wanted a three-year-old. So this worked beautifully because I love three-year-olds. So this worked Because three-year-olds little... are awesome, but not one-year-olds, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just not in love with babies. No, like, you, you know, somebody I else hear... could do no, the baby I totally stuff, get it. you know. Yeah. Whatever. I'm good. I'm good. Anyway, so this little girl had been in foster care for almost her whole life, really in and out, in and out since she was just two, two months old. She had been in on that, then a long-term foster care that was now looking for adoption. So that's where we stepped in to foster her, ultimately adopt her, um, had lots of arguments and, and, uh, disagreements with social services. Uh, that's another conversation, but pursued, persevered, did not give up is what you're saying. Tenacity might be part of the characteristic here. We like to use the word unbeatable. Yeah. Yes, unbeatable. But my goal was not just my interest, and I certainly wanted this child to be my daughter, but my goal was her interest. Do not put her in a vulnerable situation that will scar her for Uh life. And so this is what... This is the kind of conversations that we had move forward. And when she was five, we were able to finalize the adoption and it was beautiful. So you spent two years in that process. Two years in that process. Yeah, absolutely. Wondering, okay, there's court again. Will mom show up? Will dad show up? Oh, now grandma is saying she wants to take Uh the kids. Okay. What's this going to be? So a lot of fluidity, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of emotional turmoil, but we held it, not the child. And that was the important part for me. We would hold that. And so we did that. Um, and then when my daughter, so she was five, when she was about eight or nine, I think she said, mom, we should adopt again. We should help more kids like me. Well, at this point, I've got a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old. I'm not necessarily interested in no. 
opening up you the whole can of worms again. Life's getting a little easier. They're a bit more independent. But, you know, the Lord didn't let that go. And so we started inquiring and looking. And we decided at this point, as a family team, we would adopt a sibling group. And so that's a different thing. So we, we adopt, we again, started our home study process again, um, going through that whole analysis uh-huh. again. And then we were, and we said we were wanting a fan, um, sorry, we were wanting a sibling group and we had our eyes on a particular sibling group that was a, that, that was profiled online on one of those harder to match because it is a sibling group. And it was three little girls and we were committed to this and we were pushing our home study through so fast so we could get these three little girls. Well, when our home study was concluded, I think it was on a Wednesday, we got the approval. Good news, you're approved to be an adoptive family. Bad news, those girls are already placed with someone else only because this other family was completed their paperwork yeah, like the yeah. day before. Okay, no worries. Wow. Two days late, so heartbroken. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, I'm Robbie. I'm on a roller coaster. You're on an emotions. emotional roller coaster right now. I right? am. Yes, I am. Two days later in the morning, I get a phone call from social services that says, Hey, Robbie. Um, would you be interested in, in twin? No, would you be interested in babies? Babies. Yes. Okay. Yes. I said, uh, would you be interested in twins? Okay. Two babies. Could you? Yeah. Yeah. Two babies. And then could you be ready next week? Okay. Wow. That's fast. That's not usually happened. The first one we waited over nine months, which is still relatively fast, but nine months. Uh, this was done on Wednesday on Friday. Could you meet these girls next week? Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then I phoned my husband at work and he, his, it's funny. His response was exactly the same. Okay. 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 <laughs> but here it was now what we need, what we didn't know at this time is that this needed to be an open adoption. Yeah. And can you describe the difference? Because I don't think people understand what that, uh, um, what's going to come along with an open adoption. Well, it, an adoption, if it's closed, yeah means that legally the biological family are now legally strangers they have no hold on the child whatsoever and the adoptive family uh, are now family and have no legal obligation to have any relationship with the family and that's historically how adoptions were um this was going to be an open adoption because the babies the twins to this point they were five months old they had been in the care of their biological grandmother and she was already raising a granddaughter mm-hmm. and she couldn't see how she could raise more grandchildren. And her daughter was only 19 at the birth of these twins. So how many more children might there be? Because her, her daughter was in addiction and in a really hard, hard time in her life. And so grandma was looking for somebody, a family that would come in and be adoptive family, but still allow her to be grandparent. So that was an open adoption in, in our case. And it's, and so we had to trust ourselves that we could establish whatever boundaries we would mm-hmm. need and that in time we could perhaps grow a relationship. And, you know, you have to trust your capacity to make these sorts of decisions and to make decisions along the way. Well, let me tell you, it's been a, it's been a blessing. It's really? been amazing. It's been amazing. At this very first meeting, we were in this big conference room, my husband and I on one side of the table two big conference tables back to back grandma and her sister on the other side of the table and a social worker there, you know, to mediate. And we were having a conversation and you could see the tension, of course, because Mm -hmm. they're talking about their grandchildren, her grandchildren. And it was sounding like it was all going to be okay. And then I said to her, um, Shauna, I only have one condition 
And she looked at me, you know, anxious. And I said, my only condition is that um, you will be grandma to my other two children as well. You like my, you have to be grandma to my other two children. You can't single out just these two. Well, I didn't know Shauna well enough then, but I know that Shauna is got the biggest heart and the most inclusive person. This meshed perfectly with how she operates in the world. And, and it's been beautiful. And she does, she, she, she accepts my other two children as they are her grandchildren as well. Wow. So it's been beautiful. And you've uh, adopted one other, right? Yes, sir. For if it, though four wasn't enough, um, through grandma and also mom's bio mom's sisters, we're friends with them too. They call me, they're biracial and they call me their sister. And I'm, you know, very Caucasian, green eyes, light hair, and they call me sister. And I, it's just beautiful. It's so much respect. Um, but through grandma and aunties, um, we learned that bio mom was pregnant again and was very in a very dark place with Uh her addiction and her homelessness. And oh my goodness, my girls were two years old. And what is, my twins are two years old. And what is this going to mean? And I sought counsel from a lot of people. And a lot of people said, hey, it's not your deal. It's not your issue. Yeah, it's not Um, your fault, right? It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. And and I believe that. And I I believe that. But I also didn't have any peace. And um, we had a scheduled visit. So grandma and Um, the girl's older sister and auntie were at our place. So the three generations are at our place. We're visiting, we're having dinner, but I can see that grandma is really stressed. And so I say, Hey, what, what's up? And she tells me mom had a baby today and a baby boy, and they're just distraught. And because when you have a grandchild born to you, born into your family, when your child is an addiction, it is trauma and it's heartbreak and it's fear and uh, so this is where she was coming from. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, loved on her and just like try to walk with her. And it was that evening and we hadn't, we didn't have a plan. We knew baby was coming, but we didn't have a plan. It was that evening. I went to my room and I opened my Bible and it came to James 1, 9 that says the true religion that honors the Lord mm-hmm. is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. Oh, and I just got shivers telling you that. Um, Shauna, grandma was the widow in distress Uh and baby was in the NICU needing a family. And I said, okay, Lord. And I spoke to my husband and he's like, absolutely. And then we, I phoned Shauna, grandma the next day. And I said, can we adopt him? Yeah. I think most people would say before even, uh, considering the twins, you already have one biological child. Now I've already adopted one. Uh, you know, I don't have the capacity. So the fact Robbie, that you were willing to open your heart up to twin girls and then to, again, um, it's incredible. At what point were you introduced to fetal alcohol syndrome? I was introduced to fetal alcohol syndrome ever so briefly back in my college days. I think we had an afternoon conversation about the the damage or, or, or what prenatal alcohol exposure could do to a child and the damage and what that looks like behaviorally and what that looks like psychologically and in terms of learning disabilities. I think it was an afternoon lecture about that. And at that time, all we were told is that Fetal alcohol spectrum, as it was called, or fetal alcohol syndrome, as it was called at the time, uh-huh. uh, would lead to um, a gappy memory and problems with math. That's it. End just of con- memory uh, yeah, and that's math. the end of it. Huh. Memory and math. And like, okay, well, okay. Well, that's easy. Uh, 
that's not so I'm not so good at math either. So not so bad. And, <laughs> and I don't I, have I've, good memory. I forgot so. a lot of stuff. So <laughs> you were going to ask me some trigonometry. Don't yeah. do that. Okay. <laughs> um, th- that's what I knew. And so even so, even so, when we went to adopt the first time as foster to adopt, when you go to adopt through the government, it, it's, it's kind of a part of the process is really distasteful is that you get a, a child profile form and you can actually literally check off boxes. Like I want a Caucasian child. I want a mixed race child. I want it, whatever. And you can say, I want a healthy child, no vision would you take vision issues? Yes or no. Would you take hearing issues? So it's like this. Wow. It's terrible. It's like, am I picking a puppy or yeah, am I take, yeah. taking a child? I hated that part of the process. I hated it. But the first time around when it came to FASD, I, I didn't select that one. I, that's not really where I wanted to go uh-huh. because um, my own daughter was uh so very clever, so very smart, so very strong-willed and independent. I thought, how do I parent such, oh, a, yeah. such a spectrum yeah. of like strong capacity to, okay, I'm going to need to support this one a lot. I didn't know that I could do that when I was 29 years old. Um, but you grow and you change. And uh, I did adopt my daughter and she was pre- my first one and she was prenatally exposed to alcohol. And I did have, we did have her screened and they didn't see any indicators um, uh, early on. We certainly saw some later on. Um, and then when we moved to adopt the twins, we knew that there was certainly substance exposure because the mom was in, in addiction, in poverty, in uh, homelessness, um, in a bad situation. So we knew the girls were exposed, but oftentimes when you adopt a baby, it doesn't really show up. Like they just look like cute, chubby little Uh twins. Um, we, we use the word spectrum now instead of a syndrome and spectrum denotes that there are levels or degrees of effect that it has. Can you in really uh, generic terms, give people kind of an idea of what does it look like along this spectrum, uh, fetal alcohol Absolutely. spectrum? Sure. So um, first of all, a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder it, is caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. And even prenatal alcohol exposure only in that first trimester, which is, you know, the first few weeks when women yeah. don't even realize Right. Some pregnant. women who are heavy drinkers don't even know they're pregnant when they're drinking a lot because they're or, not or aware. Even yeah, or even, you know, we know that 50 to 60% of pregnancies are unplanned, right? And we know that women of childbearing years, um, 80% of those women drink alcohol. So if you have unplanned pregnancies and you have recreational alcohol even, you are going to have a problem. Yeah, you don't even and have to be good at trigonometry to figure out that math. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so the spectrum is very wide. It might be that the child has some learning disabilities, um, it has, a, has a really hard time understanding cause and effect. And that's why your typical beha- uh, behavioral-based parenting doesn't work. Groundings, talking tos, uh, timeouts, that doesn't work. Um, it can look that way. Also, typically, 90% of children, over 90% of individuals with FASD don't have that FASD face. If you Google what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, you get a picture of a really shrunken brain and you get a picture of this face that's misformed um while that can happen that's at the extreme end of the spectrum um and in fact the reason why so few individuals it's seven percent of individuals have the face uh the face of fasd that's only if alcohol is consumed on day 19 20 and 21 really that's because that's when the face is developing 
Wow. Just those three days. Those three days. Huh. And so there's many women that at three weeks along, we're talking three weeks along, they may not yeah. know they're pregnant yeah. yet. Yeah. So uh, 90% of people with FASD, 93% of people with FASD don't have that face, but they still have the brain impairment. Uh-huh. And so that, that's that's the importance. And then also because alcohol uh, in utero passes right through the placenta, there's no barrier. So if mom has an ounce, baby has an ounce. Like, and baby doesn't have a liver yet, guys, you know, so there's nothing to process that alcohol. And so it really damages the baby. And if we think about how babies are developed, they're developed from the center out, right? And the brain from the top up. And so it's that midline that can be very impacted by alcohol. So heart, lungs, digestion skeleton you're saying that there is basically the exact same blood alcohol level in the baby that there is in the mom because there's nothing there's no barrier that's filtering it right no my alcohol is such a tiny molecule it just goes right through the yeah. placenta that doesn't filter right to baby so i'm 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 reading between the lines your second and third adoption you said I would be willing to accept a child that has been born somewhere on that spectrum. Yes. What? Okay. I I just got to know, Robbie. I mean, now that you've been around it a little bit, most people would say now that I know what it is and it's not my child and I'm adopting, I don't have the capacity for that. No way. I got to know what prompted you to say, okay, I'm aware of this and I'm willing to adopt anyway. Very simple. There's no throwaway babies. There's no throwaway children. Somebody has to step in the gap. So I stepped in the gap. Yeah, but everybody, I think everybody agrees with what you said. Yeah, somebody has to step in the gap. Just not me. Somebody else has to step in the gap. I'm, I'm, I'm so in, amazed that you would say, yes, somebody has to need step in the gap and that somebody should be me. Yep. I'm going to be a mom. When I saw those girls prostituting on the street and they were like nine, 10 years old, I thought at the time, I've got to do something. And as I grew and as I aged a little bit, you know, 21 and I know everything. Uh, yeah, no. Um, I thought I could be a mom to a child who needs a mom. And so that's what I did. And that's what I did for these twins. I was a mother to babies that needed a mother. And then when their baby brother was born and he was so desperately ill, um, I, I could be his mother. Yeah, I hope people heard what you just said. That's so profound. Like you didn't look for this. You didn't ask for this necessarily. You just saw a need and said, I can be a mother to a child that needs a mother. That child just happens to have uh, fetal alcohol um, some somewhere on that spectrum. And, and just to bring the listeners up to, you know, at this point now, you have one biological child and four adopted children, and the four adopted children all have some degree of of uh, exposure to the to fetal alcohol. So, can you just describe what was it like for a day as a mom with five children, four of whom have some? Ch- well, let's be honest; every child has you know need, has some needs some some special attention from mom. What was this like? Just just tell people what was what is what was a day like for you, Robbie? Hell, it was hell. Are you crazy? It was intense. <laughs> That's what I wanted you to tell them. Intense. I'm so glad you didn't say. Oh, it was it was all butterflies and flowers and unicorn kisses. 
well, for a moment, for a hot second, and then it would just go crazy. I mean, my kids are beautiful. They're talented. They're funny. Um, they're also volatile. My three little ones are volatile. Um, so it's intense. It's intense. Um, when we brought home the baby, just get this in your mind for a second. My oldest is 16. My next is 12. Okay, your hands are full already. You yeah. have a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old. Who I'm homeschooling. And then I have twins. Awesome. And not like, I'm not like, yay, homeschool. Can't drop them off and get a, get a little bit of a break. They're every moment of the day around you. Keep going. Not because I'm like passionate like that. I had to step in the gap. Anyway, so I've got a 16-year-old. I've got a 12-year-old that I'm homeschooling. And I've got two girls that are almost three years old. And then I bring home a brand new baby from the NICU who's only five pounds. Wow. And a husband who's working shifts and two dogs that need some kind of care. It was a, my oldest calls it a gong show. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you're talking about the old comedy, the gong show. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was ridiculous. And as a reminder, you have already mentioned that a couple of those children were open adoption, which means the uh, biological family is still very much in their life, or as, I guess in open adoption, as much as the biological family wants to be in their life, they're still in that child's life, which is a un another unique dynamic. In your case, it, it, it sounds like it turned out beautiful, but it doesn't always turn out that way. No, it, no, it certainly doesn't. I mean, it, it's, it's as complex, well, a little bit more complex, but it's, you could think about it like an in-law relationship. Like sometimes you just can't get along with your in-laws or vice versa because they, they, they don't. Because they're different, you right? You're different. They're different. Them. Yeah, I'm different. They're different. They have a different way of parenting, a different way of seeing the world. And they might have a lot of unwelcome advice for how you're parenting. Um, and so you could think about the biological grandparents potentially being that way. Not for a day. Not for a day. My twins are now 17 years old. Not for a day have they been at all disrespectful or or un, or, or even spoken their thought about what, what could be done wow. differently or better. Yeah. It's yeah. been, you know, and grandma and I are, we, we live in the same city. We're friends on Facebook. We poke fun at each other all the time. Good for you too. Like, we really love each other. And uh, I love her other kids. And, um, and recently we had the opportunity for the girls, the kids, the three girls, three kids rather, to meet their birth mother. Really? And that was beautiful. How was, long ago was that? Um, we, my girls, okay, there's, it was three, two years ago. Pardon me for stuttering. It was That's three right. years ago. It was, it was three years ago. It, it was when the girls were 14 years old. The one twin was really pushing. I need to see my birth mother. I need to be, I want to meet my birth mother. And um, I'll tell you, as an adoptive parent, that's not what we welcome. Yeah, I was going to say that must have been hard for you to hear. Just saying, I need to meet her. Yeah, um, because we get fearful. All, yeah. all people get fearful. And I was fearful that it could disrupt our attachment. It could disrupt our relationship. Because, you know, 13 and 14 Yeah, you're just olds, introducing another dynamic into the family, right? Well, that and another mother. So if she right. gets mad at this mother and every 13-year-old gets mad at yeah. their mother, they get mad at this mother, I'm going to go live with that mother. You know, and most families don't have to deal with that. I'm like, oh my God, goodness. And I also know birth mom has had a long history of addiction, has a long history of, of issues. Let's just call them issues. issues. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, they're issues. And so I'm not quite sure what her capacity is either. So I said to the girls, okay, well, first I had to process that. Like, yes, I hear you. I understand this is important. And they've always known their adoption, always known they're adopted. Yeah. That's not an issue. Um, let me let me think on this and let me talk to Grandma Shauna. 
because I needed to make a plan with grandma because we needed to ensure, in my opinion, we needed to ensure that my children were psychologically and emotionally ready, but we also needed to make sure birth mom was psychologically yeah, right. and emotionally yeah. ready. This is a hard thing. So it took us a year of planning and then we, uh, about a, about a year of planning. And then we, we agreed that we would meet for a picnic in a park and that was neutral. And that's what we did. And Jeff, to say it was a spiritual event would not be overstating it. It was absolutely beautiful. Really? Absolutely beautiful. Oh, that's awesome. We brought some, my girls love to plan a picnic. So we just brought some watermelon and some crackers. Cause you know what? Everybody can have a conversation over food. Um, no pressure. And the family, the bio family. So mom, dad, baby sister, there's a baby sister. I didn't tell you about baby sister was there. Older sister was there. Grandma was there. So we've got three generations here. And then I'm walking up with my husband and my children only only these three children and and the family's watching us and it was really interesting and as this birth mom who is now in her 30s hugged each of her children for the first time since they were wow infants, that's the first time they met yeah since they were infants so my girls are 14 years old and she's hugging them for the first time and i kept my hand on my children's back i just needed them to know i'm here mm -hmm. and i also needed to hear just to make sure that everything was going to be okay. And this birth mom was lovely. She just said, I love you so much. Man, yeah. I can only imagine what those words meant to your, to, to those children. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. And I didn't feel threatened at all. It was, and, and then, you know, the, the kids interacted and they were loved to meet their little sister who was about a year and a half at this time. And their older sister was there and we are at a playground. So the kids could do what kids do. They could yeah, play, right. they can move. And then as adults, we sat and we talked and it was beautiful. And birth mom said to me, um, you know, you don't need to be afraid of me. I'm not, I'm not here to take the kids away. I just want to know them. I just want to know my kids, yeah. our kids. And she's careful and I'm careful. Oh, she used the word our, our. our kids. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's and amazing. She, um, hey, Robbie, you've been uh, since you've been around these government services um, and placement agencies, um, you've also been around some nonprofits. We talked about this, by the way, just briefly before this show began. Um, I've been around more than a few nonprofits in my lifetime, too. And um, I have this segment. Um, I call it the high five. It's a way of having just a little bit of fun and kind of going back and forth between the United States and Canada, you know, going across the border, having some fun with each other. Um, but what I want to do in this segment is I want to talk about kind of the funny but not so funny parts of working with nonprofits because you've been around a nonprofit or two um, when you or you were around foster and adoption. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, nonprofits are unique and they have their own distinctives. And there's a few challenges. Let's just use air quotes around that word that go along with nonprofits. So my top five, this, this high five segment, this uh, episode is just describing the challenges of being around or working in conjunction with not necessarily working for, but maybe that's where you're at working for or working near nonprofits. And I want to give you kind of like the top five things that I've seen around nonprofits and you kind of, you, you give me your thoughts. Okay. So here's number uh, one on my list, and I, I think it's number one by a landslide. 
nonprofits spend a ton of time and energy raising money. And if you don't raise money, you don't have a nonprofit. So unfortunately, a lot of things can fall through the cracks because you spend so much time and energy raising money. Have you, you seen this, uh, Robbie? Oh man, you're preaching to the choir. Yes. So much energy has to go to raising funds, raising money, raising awareness. So much work goes to that. But yeah, sometimes other things, the more important, the work you're passionate about doing slides. Yeah. And I'm glad you just said that because not only are you raising funds, not only are you raising awareness, but here's number two on my list. Let's just be honest. You're working your tail off trying to raise volunteers because nonprofits, essentially the the bread and butter of a nonprofit, no matter what the uh, industry is built around volunteers. So now not only are things dropping uh, through the cracks because of raising funds, but the other time and energy that isn't spent raising funds is trying to recruit volunteers And that is no small task. Have you seen some of those challenges? Oh, goodness. Yes, absolutely. Trying to raise, trying to find volunteers and then are they qualified and then training them. And then, oh, and, and then if they're younger volunteers, if they happen to be of the millennial generation, you know, if a better offer comes along, they just don't show up to work. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. So um, also we pour so much of our heart and soul into it and we don't get those of us who are volunteering, we're happy to do so, but at some level, you know, if we're using, if we're sharing our expertise, a little bit of remuneration might not be a bad thing. Yeah. Hey, come on out there, nonprofits. If you got a whole lot of amazing volunteers, maybe you want to let them know how amazing they are. There's a few ways that you can do that. Um, Here's number three on my list. A nonprofit lives and dies by their reputation. So they have no choice but to work hard, to be involved in their community, to develop a great reputation and to protect that reputation. And the simplest, smallest things can sometimes hurt a reputation. I've seen some great nonprofits that really didn't do anything wrong, just got some bad press and it was devastating to them. Have you seen examples of this? Absolutely. Absolutely. We all like to pile on somebody when they're down, right? Yeah. Um, We now live in a virtual world because of COVID and the restrictions worldwide. So if you add on top of these challenges, this is number four on my list, trying to be physically and practically involved in a virtual world right now. Man, my heart goes out to nonprofits that are trying to figure this one out. I don't know if you experienced any of that, but um, nonprofits are now trying to figure this out. How do you do this virtually? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I'm, I'm involved with a nonprofit. I have a contract with a nonprofit organization and I do some teaching, some parent teaching. And how do we pivot from having a room full of parents where we can interact and have this dynamic yeah. conversation to Zoom? And at the beginning of this, come on, none of us knew anything about Zoom when yeah, the pandemic and nobody started. Nobody liked it anyway. Those that did didn't like it. <laughs> and so now you're trying to run parenting groups and coaching through Zoom, but it's really awkward because you, what you've got is these talking heads, and then everybody else is sitting passively. Yeah. And they're not sure. You. Is it my turn to talk? Wait, I'm, I, I think there's my, you know, sure. Yeah. Um, Here's my last item on the list, number five for me, but it's actually not number five. It's probably number one of the greatest challenges, and it's finding talented leaders. And I don't mean that people that are leaders are not and in nonprofits are not talented. I'm just saying some of the most talented leaders out there are not going to give their talent to a nonprofit because they know they could make 10 times the money 
if they did uh, if they led in a for-profit world. So leadership or finding the right leaders may be one of the greatest challenges that nonprofits go through. And unfortunately, a lot of nonprofits struggle because of some of the, uh, you know, the lack of leadership there. Have you experienced anything like that? Yes, 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 I have. <laughs> I yeah. Have. So, um, Robbie, you, you were introduced to fetal alcohol, um, the, the spectrum kind of, uh, be out of necessity, but you, you somewhat became an expert in it, um, to the point now that you have a podcast describing and helping families understand what this FASD, um, family life is like. Can you describe your podcast to people? Sure. My podcast FASD Family Life is born out of my passion to help families thrive. I recognize how very challenging it is to, to be raising a child who looks typical but has a neurobehavioral or neurodevelopmental disorder. And so their behaviors are so challenging and extreme and typical parenting doesn't work. And, and in fact, the more you employ typical parenting strategies, be it a timeout, uh, a lecture, uh, loss of privileges, you know, those sorts of things, sticker charts, the more you work at that, the harder and harder you work, the worse and worse and worse it gets. I know that from lived experience. I also, and I know how lonely it is from lived experience. And so it's from that passion that I decided I would start a podcast so that I could be a friend to that one person, that one parent who was on this journey that felt so alone, that felt so broken down, that I could maybe share some of my experience with them and some of my ed education with them. And I could equip them to better parent their children. Yeah. So when you uh, do this podcast, are you bringing guests on that have some exposure to it? Are you uh, interviewing families that are, are currently, you know, uh, living with the symptoms of FASD? Yes, I have a kind of a broad uh, panel to choose from. Uh, when I first started, it was largely me doing some teaching, some basic parental teaching and also teaching about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I still do that from time to time. I also bring on guest experts uh, on the show. Dr. Jared Brown is a recurring uh, guest on my show and he's a PhD right. in multiple, multiple uh, master's degrees. And he speaks very, from a very academic and clinical, and then I pepper it with the mom stories. And so it's really beautiful. It's yeah. really a beautiful kind of time. I also have birth moms. I've had some birth moms come on and talk about, Hey, my lived experience as a woman who was an addiction or, or didn't know I was pregnant and I drank casually uh -huh. and now I'm learning to parent. And then other parents who are, uh, on the same journey with me. I recently had Craig Peterson on my show to hear from a veteran parent who's mm -hmm. raised four, us uh, rather six adopted children, four with FASD. So I, I have a wide um, array of episodes. Well, um, when you talked just a moment ago, I cued in on the fact that you're helping people in your podcast who, as parents, are working through some challenges and the normal parenting approaches are not working. And I, w I just want to encourage people, if you um, have any exposure to this, even if you just want to become a better parent, why don't you check out Robbie Seal's podcast, the F.A. of of FASD family life. But um, I, I can't help but think a lot of people are listening right now who are parents and saying, hey, Robbie, my biological child, not, uh, not at all exposed to FASD, but um, I'm trying a lot of things and it isn't working and I'm struggling and I could use all the advice that I could get. Um, all of us as parents have gone through moments like that. Some parents spend a lot of moments, like it feels like we live at this moment. 
So as parents are struggling with some children, uh, with some parenting challenges, what some advice that they would hear from your podcast? First thing you would hear from my podcast and what, as you were saying, it came to my heart was kids do well if they can. And I, I take that from Dr. Ross Green in his work. Kids do well if they can. So if they're not doing well, it's up to us as parents to investigate why. What's the lagging skill? What's the lagging development? What's the what's getting in the way of our kids doing well? Because all of us want to do well. And if we can't do well, we signal with perhaps asking for help or avoiding a task until we may have behaviors. Like I'm telling you, if you ask me to do your taxes, I'm going to say, no, I'm really not equipped. And then if you keep pushing me to do your taxes, I'm going to avoid. And then if you push me even farther, I'm probably going to have a temper tantrum Yeah. because you're asking me to do something I cannot do. And yeah, then if, I don't do it well, I'm going to get punished if for you, something I said I can't do. Yeah. If you ask me to do my taxes, I'm probably going to throw a temper tantrum because I can't do my own taxes well. Exactly. But see, this is what we do to our kids all the time. Like we, like we teach math skills very incrementally. Like we count on our fingers and we have manipulatives. But somehow we expect kids to behave. Somehow we expect kids to sit at the dinner table even when they're two years old. Or right. we expect kids to share or to say please, or to, you know, have manners or, or to have self emotional self-control, you know, and sometimes we're the very parents who are slamming sure. kitchen doors when yeah. we're angry, but we won't allow the three-year-old to do that. Yeah. You just described, I think the average home uh, with a parent that doesn't have emotional control, trying to figure out how to help their child have emotional control. Um, I'm, I, I think, what you're describing right now, every parent goes through, we all go through it from time to time. And there are times that parents feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, but I really think there are some parents that they've given it everything that they've got and they're still struggling. And what I'd like to do to end this podcast with you, Robbie, is just give you a chance to maybe give one or two practical pieces of advice to that parent who said, look, I've given it everything that I've got. I poured my heart out. I really have done the best that I can, but it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. So what would you say to that parent right now? Um, I would say to that parent, take a deep breath, take a step back, and, and really look at if you're thinking about a particular behavior, a particular situation, and look at what perhaps was the antecedent of that and try to think about that. And again, take this approach of kids do well if they can. So if my child isn't doing well in this particular situation, why am I expecting too much? Am I expecting my child to behave at a higher developmental level, just throw away the age, a higher yeah. developmental level yeah. than they are? Um, am I expecting them to operate with a different personality than they have? Like I'm very extroverted and don't know if you could tell that, but I'm very <laughs> extroverted. <laughs> what a surprise. Surprise. Several of my children are highly, highly introverted. So that means their energy levels and the way they engage with people mm -hmm. and in the world is very different than me. I had to learn that. Also, so kids do well if they can. What's the lagging skill? What's the what's the lagging developmental level? These are the things I would say. So take a step back, mom and dad, give yourself a breath, give yourself a break. These are not little adults, these are children. They're only learning. If you have questions about, you know, ADHD. Um, other brain-based that are challenging. Mm -hmm. I would also highly recommend that people look at brain-based parenting, um, which is looking at that, like how does the brain work? How does that impact behavior? And so if we can support the brain and take this compassionate attachment-based approach, we're going to gain a lot of ground with our kids and we're going to decrease the stress 
Well, thank you. And for because we call this podcast unbeatable, I feel like there's a mom out there right now. Maybe there's a dad out there right now who feels like I've given it everything that I have. I don't have anything else to give. I'm this close and um, to just throw it in the towel and giving up on my children or giving up on myself as a parent. Can you offer that dad or that mom one piece of advice as we get ready to close? Never give up. Never give up. There's no throwaway child. There's no throwaway mom. There's, there's maybe things we can learn. Don't give up. If you need to talk to somebody, talk to me, fasdfamilylife at gmail.com. That's the advice that I, we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but that's the advice that I hope that you would have given them is just no matter how hard it is right now, no matter how much you're, you're ready to throw in the towel and throw your hands up, never give up um, because the child is worth it. Your family's worth it. Your you family's know, worth your it. Your future's and, you worth know, it. Yeah. And, you know, as a believer, uh, I've given a lot of things to the Lord in prayer. And, and a lot of, a lot of times when we're younger believers, we give a lot of prescriptions to the Lord. Uh Like if you would just do this, um, that don't work. What, (laughs) what I have learned, you know, my most profound prayers are now Lord help because I'm so desperate. I, and I don't know what the answer is. And I also don't know what the Lord's big plan is. So Lord help. And, you know, when I pray that way, the Lord gives me wisdom. The Lord gives me perspective. That is great advice. Maybe just instead of throwing your hands up and walking away, just throw up a prayer and say, Lord, help. And um, I'm not giving up, but I'm in over my head and I need help. Robbie, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Thanks for uh, warming up uh, this podcast for us today. I'm using some, you know, uh, temperature outside language for you. Thanks for warming this up and and doing this episode for us today. And I'm so glad that you were on this episode with us. Oh, it's a thrill for me. Thank you so much. It was really great, Jeff. Hey, you just heard it from her own lips. Robbie looked at the unbeatable audience, if you're watching this, said it to those of you who are listening, no matter how big the challenges are, never give up. I'm not just talking about the challenges of parenting or family. I'm talking about whatever that obstacle is in front of you. If you will just hang in there, if you will refuse to give up, you can overcome this challenge. That's why this podcast exists, to help you become unbeatable when you're ready to throw your hands up and give up. Thank you for joining us during this episode. Hey, if you found us for the first time, would you go ahead and follow us on social media? You can just search for at Unbeatable Podcast on your favorite social media platform. And if you started to listen and you like what you're hearing, why don't you go ahead and rate us on your favorite podcast platform and let everybody in the world know what you think about the Unbeatable Podcast. Hey, if you're struggling, we created a little document called the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide just to help you get through some of your hardest days. All you got to do to get this guide is go to unbeatablearmy.com. It's totally free. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'll see you right back here next week.